Good morning gamers, and welcome to the Polygonal Sunrise, your weekly video game news briefing every Monday morning. Today is Monday, February 18th, 2019. I'm your host, Jack Martin. Let's see what happened last week. Activision Blizzard lays off hundreds of employees. This article was written by Jason Trier of Kotaku on Tuesday, February 12th. Publisher Activision Blizzard has begun its long-rumored layoff process, informing employees this afternoon that it will be cutting staff. On an earnings call this afternoon, the company said that it would be eliminating 8% of its staff. In 2018, Activision Blizzard had roughly 9,600 employees, which would mean nearly 800 people are now out of work. This afternoon, the mega-publisher began notifying those who are being laid off across its various organizations, which include Activision, Blizzard, and King. On the earnings call, Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick told investors that the company had, quote, once again achieved record results in 2018, end quote, but that the company would be consolidating and restructuring because of missed expectations for 2018 and lowered expectations for 2019. The company said it would be cutting mainly non-game development departments and bolstering its development staff for franchises like Call of Duty and Diablo. Development sources from across the industry told Kotaku this afternoon that the layoffs have affected Activision Publishing, Blizzard, King, and some of Activision Studios, including High Moon. At Blizzard, the layoffs appear to only have affected non-game development departments, such as publishing and esports, both of which were expected to be hit hard. Quote, over the last few years, many of our non-development teams expanded to support various needs, end quote. Blizzard President J. Allen Brock said in a note to staff around 1 p.m. PT that was attained by Kotaku, quote, currently staffing levels on some teams are out of proportion with our current release slate. This means we need to scale down some areas of our organization. I'm sorry to share that we will be parting ways with some of our colleagues in the U.S. today. In our regional offices, we anticipate similar evaluations, subject to local requirements, end quote. The letter also promised, quote, a comprehensive severance package, end quote, continued health benefits, career coaching, and job placement assistance as well as profit sharing bonuses for the previous year to those who are being laid off at Blizzard. Quote, there's no way to make this transition easy for impacted employees, but we are doing what we can to support our colleagues, end quote, Brock wrote. The news follows months of rumors about layoffs of the publisher, which heated up early last week as word began to spread that hundreds of people across Activision Blizzard's various divisions might lose their jobs. Leading up to today, some of the publisher's employees had been coming into work with no clue as to what might happen. One person at Blizzard told me this morning that as employees arrived, they cried and exchanged hugs in the parking lot. I'm going to keep my thoughts on this situation brief since it affects people's livelihoods, but I do have some things to say. Announcing that your company once again achieved record results in 2018, but is, at the same time, laying off hundreds of employees is insulting to the affected staff. This way of announcing such a massive layoff is so tone deaf. Why would anyone think it's okay to announce record results while at the same time announcing such huge layoffs? The work that these hundreds of devs poured their hearts and souls into doesn't seem to be acknowledged by Activision at all, and that's such a shame considering how backbreaking game development is. Developers are generally pretty good at helping their fellow colleagues in the industry, so hopefully these devs will land on their feet pretty soon. On to the next story about Nintendo Direct. Here's all the big news from the Nintendo Direct that took place on February 13th. This information was written by Oscar Deus of GameSpot on Wednesday, February 15th. Super Mario Maker 2. 
Super Mario Maker 2 has been announced, with a release window of June this year. Super Smash Bros. Ultimate Super Smash Bros. Ultimate's 3.0 update has been detailed, and we also got a confirmed release date for the upcoming DLC character Joker, which will be sometime before April. Additionally, several more Smash-themed amiibo figures are on the way, including Pokemon Trainer, Metal Gear Solid's Snake, and Castlevania's Simon Belmont. Box Boy and Box Girl Box Boy and Box Girl is a brand new game with 270 stages, including two-player co-op. It's the first Switch game in the Box Boy series, which began in 2015 on the 3DS and was most recently seen in 2017 with Bye Bye Box Boy. Captain Toad Treasure Tracker The Switch version of Captain Toad Treasure Tracker is getting new DLC, some of which is paid, new challenges and courses, and some of which is free, a new co-op mode which will be live in a few hours. Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 The Black Order New details and characters were revealed for this upcoming brawler, and now we know the Defender Squad will be included. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening Nintendo has revealed a remake of the Game Boy Classic The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening for the Nintendo Switch. Bloodstained Ritual of the Night we got an update on the progress of Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, whose release date will fall in summer 2019. Tetris 99 Tetris 99 is a new free-to-play twist on classic Tetris that pits, you guessed it, 99 players against one another. Assassin's Creed 3 Remaster Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed 3 Remaster will be available on Nintendo Switch on May 21st. It will include a remaster of the PlayStation Vita title Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation and the Tyranny of King Washington DLC. Fire Emblem Three Houses Fire Emblem Three Houses got an extended trailer showing off a bunch of narrative details about the game. On top of that, we got to see combat and learn more about how characters will form bonds. Nintendo has also confirmed a release date for the game, July 26th of this year, as well as a special edition of the game. Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice Ninja Theory's acclaimed action game, which explores mental illness through the lens of a Norse mythology setting, is coming to Nintendo Switch and has a release window of Spring 2019. Deltarune Toby Fox's Deltarune is coming to Switch on February 28th, with Chapter 1 of the Undertale follow-up being downloadable for free. Additional chapters, which are, quote, currently in development, end quote, will not be free, however. Yoshi's Crafted World A demo of Yoshi's Crafted World is coming to Switch today, giving Nintendo Switch owners a free taste of the little dinosaur's next big adventure. And finally, Final Fantasy IX and Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII is launching for Switch next month on March 26th, but Final Fantasy IX will be available in the Switch eShop later today. Chocobo's Mystery Dungeon, Everybody, meanwhile, is set to arrive next month on March 2nd. Here's my thoughts on all the announcements for the Nintendo Direct. I'm a somewhat new Switch owner, and I'm always looking for new games, and a lot of these titles pique my interest. Hellblade, Final Fantasy VII, and Tetris 99 specifically really grab my attention. I never picked up Hellblade for the PS4, but I'm definitely interested in grabbing it for the Switch. I've never played Final Fantasy VII, but it seems like one of those classic games that everyone needs to play, so I'm excited to try it on Switch. And Tetris 99 just seems like a great twist on the Tetris brand. Marvel Ultimate Alliance isn't really grabbing my attention, which is weird because I'm such a big Marvel fan, but I think it's a great get for the Switch as an exclusive. Maybe if the game releases and gets stellar reviews, then I'll give it a go. And on to the next story. Sean Layden says, quote, The world has changed, but E3 hasn't necessarily changed with it. This article was written by Rebecca Valentine of GamesIndustry.biz on Monday, February 11th. Sony's absence from E3 in 2019, though speculated as a bit of a buffer year while the company prepares for something much larger in 2020, may have more to do with how E3 has changed in recent years than what Sony itself is planning. In an interview with CNET, chairman of Sony Interactive Entertainment's Worldwide Studios, Sean Layden, 
said that the reason the company was skipping E3 in 2019 came down to what the show had become over the years. As E3 experienced growing pains, he said, the show no longer functioned for them as an effective way to connect with retailers or journalists in the way it once had. Quote, now we have an event in February called Destination PlayStation, where we bring all retailers and third-party partners to come hear the story for the year, end quote. He said, quote, they're making purchasing discussions in February. June now is just too late to have a Christmas holiday discussion with retailers. So retail has really dropped off. And journalists now, with the internet and the fact that 24-7 there is game news, it's lost its impact around that. So the trade show became a trade show without a lot of trade activity. The world has changed, but E3 hasn't necessarily changed with it, end quote. Layden also pointed out that June was an inopportune time due to the company's decision to do, quote, fewer games, bigger games over long periods of time, end quote. He said an audience would show up expecting some announcement, but Sony wouldn't have anything new to say at the time. That doesn't mean Sony will remain out forever, though. Layden says Sony wants to lead a conversation on what E3 will become in the future, suggesting the event will become more like Comic-Con going forward. Quote, we are progressing the conversation about how do we transform E3 to be more relevant, end quote, he said. Quote, can E3 transition more into a fan festival of gaming, where we don't gather there to drop the new bomb? Can it just be a celebration of games and have panels where we bring game developers closer to fans, end quote? Here's my take on Sean Layden's comments. Sony is clearly on a different track than Microsoft and Nintendo. I think it's probably true that E3 will begin to look very different in the coming years, but it still has a lot of importance for both retailers and fans right now. It's the big moment in the year where gaming companies can actively go head to head to see who has the best games coming out. I think moves like this from Sony leaves Microsoft in a very good position to continue gaining positive press for the Xbox brand leading into next generation. Without Sony at the table, Microsoft will be able to gather all the attention and set the tone how it wants to. It'll definitely be an interesting E3 without PlayStation, but I'm sure we'll see something huge from them next year. Alright, that's it for news. Let's take a look at two pretty big games that released last week. Both Metro Exodus and Crackdown 3 came out on Friday, February 15th. Metro Exodus seemed to fare better than Crackdown, according to the critics, and the game is currently sitting at a 79 on Metacritic. Digital Trends gave the game an 80, saying, quote, It still has some of the technical issues we've seen from 4A games before, but Metro Exodus stands as a terrific post-apocalyptic shooter that expands on the series' customization options and environments without ignoring its survival roots. 4A Games remains committed to turning author Dmitry Lukovsky's stories into living and breathing worlds, offering brief glimpses of hope in an otherwise depressing and occasionally nihilistic tale. Exodus establishes Metro as one of the great narrative-focused shooters, and it proves that exciting action doesn't have to come at a detriment to story." End quote. Crackdown 3, the highly anticipated Xbox and Windows exclusive, didn't fare as well, and is currently sitting at a 60 on Metacritic. In its review of the game, True Achievements gave Crackdown 3 a 60 and said, quote, It's fitting that just days after Microsoft announced the name change of their initial production branch from Microsoft Studios to Xbox Game Studios, Crackdown 3's launch screen displays the old moniker. After a year of exciting studio acquisitions for the company in 2018, and a stronger push for first party moving forward, Crackdown 3 is the last remnant of the bygone era of smart glass, live-action video game hybrids, and Force Connect purchases. It survived the purge where Fable Legends and Scalebound did not, but even in the best moments, Crackdown 3's campaign feels like it was born too late." End quote. Alright, before the end of the show, let's take a trip back in time and see what happened this week in gaming history. This is for the week of February 18th to the 24th. February 18th. On February 18th, 2009, servers for NCSoft's Tabula Rasa are shut down. February 19th. 
On February 19, 1983, in Washington, D.C., the Corcoran Gallery of Art exhibits 200 video arcade games. $35 tours include limited free plays, competition, prizes, etc. On February 19, 1991, American Video Entertainment accuses Nintendo of making secret technical changes to its Nintendo Entertainment System to make competitors' cartridges unplayable. Nintendo responds saying that the changes are part of an ongoing effort to stop worldwide game counterfeiting. February 20th. On February 20th, 1992, Nintendo asked the United States Trade Representative to cite Taiwan for failing to stop piracy of video game cartridges, which would lead to Taiwan being assessed punitive duties to their exports to the U.S. On February 20th, 2007, Sega releases Sonic and the Secret Rings for the Nintendo Wii in the U.S. On February 20th, 2009, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals rules that a California law restricting the sales and rental of violent video games to minors and imposing labeling requirements is too restrictive and violates free speech guarantees. February 21st. On February 21st, 1986, in Japan, Nintendo releases the disk system for the Famicom. The system is a 128 KB disk drive to run software. Discs can be rewritten with new games at special vending machines. Price of the disk system is about 100 US dollars. On February 21st, 1986, Nintendo releases The Legend of Zelda for the Famicom disk system in Japan. On February 21st, 2006, Sega releases Sonic Riders for the PlayStation 2, Xbox, and GameCube in the US. February 22nd. On February 22nd, 2002, in Japan, Microsoft releases the Xbox game system. Price is about 34,800 yen, about 263 US dollars. Bill Gates hands the first Xbox sold to Atsushi Ishizaka. On February 22nd, 2005, Sony releases Gran Turismo 4 for the PlayStation 2 in the US. On February 22nd, 2011, Sony Computer Entertainment releases Killzone 3 for the PlayStation 3 in the US. On February 22nd, 2012, Sony releases the PlayStation Vita in the US. February 23rd. On February 23rd, 2008, Microsoft announces it will cease making HD DVD players for the Xbox 360. On February 23rd, 2010, Ubisoft releases Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell Conviction for the Xbox 360 in the US. And again, on February 23rd, 2010, Sony Computer Entertainment releases Heavy Rain for the PlayStation 3 in the US. And finally, February 24th. On February 24th, 2006, Codemasters releases Toka Race Driver 3 for the PlayStation 2 and Xbox in the US. And on February 24th, 2008, Electronic Arts makes a hostile bid of $2 billion for Take-Two. And that's it for the Polygonal Sunrise. You can join us every Monday morning for your weekly gaming news briefing. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FascinatedJack. And you can follow the show on Twitter at PolygonalPod. If you have any questions or would like to contribute to the show, email me at PolygonalSunrise at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show in its own feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. You can also find the show under the Amherst Wired feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on AmherstWire.com. Have a great week, everyone. The Polygonal Sunrise is a production of the Amherst Wire. Visit AmherstWire.com or find them on social media at Amherst Wire. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by me. The entertainment slash podcast editor for the Amherst Wire is Jonathan Kerma. You can follow him on Twitter at jkerma98. My supervisor for the show is BJ Roach. You can follow her on Twitter at bj underscore roach. And finally, the music for today's episode is provided by Damon Hatfield. You can support him at damonhatfield.bandcamp.com or find him on iTunes and Spotify.